The teaching for this evening is based on Philippians chapter 1, verses 6, and chapter 2, verses 3, and 4, verses 8. This is God's word. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this evening I thought it would be good for us to look at a few verses from the book of Philippians because we have just installed uh, new, new officers. And this book, the book of Philippians, Paul begins the very beginning and he describes his relationship with this church as a partnership in the gospel. And much like when we baptize one of our children into the church and the congregation gets to say, essentially, we're going to help these parents. Very much the same way when we install and ordain new officers, it is a concrete expression of our common life together, of our partnership in the gospel. And so at the very beginning of this, of this letter, Paul describes with great thankfulness his partnership in ministry with this church. And so the question that I want us to wrestle with tonight, and I want to look at with you from this book, is the question of how, how do we thrive in this partnership together? How do we do that? And Paul here, when he begins, you should know that he's, he's writing from prison. In all likelihood, he's in Rome. It's toward the end of his, his life and his ministry. And he writes, in verse 1, he says, To all the saints, with the overseers, that is the elders, and the deacons. It's a very relevant book for an evening like tonight. And there are two key features as we begin to unpack a little bit. How do we thrive in this partnership that I want you to see just real briefly. Uh, It's not on on your printed for you. But the way that Paul describes this partnership with this church is that it's utterly defined by the gospel. It is a partnership in the gospel. It's not a partnership in Paul's gifts. It's not a partnership in our collective competence or our great ideas. This is a partnership in the good news about Jesus Christ and what God has done in and through him to rescue sinners and to remake a broken, fallen world. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, in this partnership, it is characterized by deep love and affection. It's why I had us read uh, from Philippians chapter 1 just a few minutes ago, where Paul, talking about these people, he says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And that's not just him for these people, but what we know about this church is that they're one of the only churches that actually sent physical help, both in sending people from that church as well as financial help 
in the midst of Paul's ministry, when he's in prison, there is a deep mutual love and affection that characterizes this partnership. So how do we thrive? What do we need? What I want us to to, to look at tonight is we're just going to touch down on three key passages in this book to try to give us what I'm calling a model for ministry, how we partner in this thing that we call church that is utterly defined by and created by and motivated by this good news called the gospel. I want us to see there are three things that we're going to need to thrive together. We need confidence, we need humility, and we need hope. We need confidence, humility, and hope. So first, let's look at the confidence that we need in verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6. Let me read it again. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Another way to think about this confidence is this is the foundation for all ministry. This is the foundation for every marriage, for every friendship. This is the foundation upon which parents must build your life in the midst of parenting. And it is this, that God is at work. Very simple point. But it's a point you must come back to every day. God is at work. Why does Paul have to say this? I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Why do you have to remember that? Why does he have to say it? The reason is because it's so easy to forget it. And oftentimes it's so hard to see. If we're honest, so much of the time it doesn't feel like or look like God is at work. If anything, what it feels like is God is not completing what he began. It looks like It won't finish well. And here Paul says, the very first thing that you need is confidence. And it's not a confidence in you. It's a confidence that God is at work, that he will finish what he has begun. Now what does that mean for you and me? What that means is, this is freedom. This is freedom for you to be honest about who you are. This means you don't have to hide. This means you don't have to be afraid of what you discover about yourself or other people. Because God is at work. It also means that we have encouragement, reason to press on, even when everything in your life would tell you otherwise. Now, what does this mean? If I could say uh, succinctly, what does it mean to say that God is at work? I want you to think of three prepositions. This is how God is at work. God is with us. Christ is in us. And God is for us. With, in, and for. That is how God is at work. 
in our community, in your lives. Now, practically, what does that mean? Practically, what this means is if you believe that God is at work, a sign of that is you begin to take yourself less serious. You're able to laugh at yourself. You don't take yourself too seriously. Now, many of you I'm getting to know more and more, and and, and some of you know me better than, than others, but I would venture to guess it's not that hard to realize I am guilty as charged. I take myself way too seriously. I'm way too self-critical. I get way too upset when things don't go the way I want them to. It's very hard to laugh at myself. Can you relate to that? Believing that God is at work means that you begin to, to be able to not take yourself too seriously. What this means for us is that ministry is ultimately not about us. What Paul is telling us here under this first idea of confidence, that ministry is about God's faithfulness and commitment to make good on his word and his work. So, here's a test for yourself, one I've already mentioned. Can you laugh at yourself? Are you able to hold on loosely enough to your own performance to be able to chuckle? Or another one, test yourself. How do you handle criticism? When someone critiques you, it might even be constructive and helpful. What happens? Now, you might not put on outwardly any any impact or effect, but what happens inside when you receive criticism. You see, if you, if you cannot laugh at yourself or you don't handle criticism very well, these are really good indicators. These are really good indicators that most likely what's happening is something like this. That deep down, what you most fundamentally believe is that the measure of your worth is the quality of your life. That the measure of your worth is the quality of your work. That the measure of your worth is the quality of your parenting or your service. But see, the gospel teaches you something absolutely the opposite of that. The gospel teaches you that the measure of your worth is Jesus' life lived for you. That the measure of your worth is not your righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus. That's what it means to believe that God is at work. That is our confidence Beginning with God and his work, it keeps in front of us our need for him and how he has come to us in Jesus. In other words, God's work in and through Jesus is what shapes not only our confidence, but also our calling and ministry. What is the second thing we need? It's humility. If I could summarize for you uh, in one word, What is the calling 
of a follower of Jesus, it's humility. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 3 of Philippians. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. That is, in a sense, the essence of the Christian life. It does not mean that you become a doormat and and allow people just to walk all over you. True humility is looking at your own needs in such a way that they don't eclipse or blind you to the needs and concerns of others. Or let me put it another way. That the true humility takes the needs and interests of others and makes them your own. They become as important to you and even more important to you than your own interests. Now, what does this look like for us practically? Essentially, what this means is the gospel makes you a person who delights in other people and their flourishing. So what is it, as an example, for elders and deacons? The, you know, the, the mark of an elder and a deacon is a person who delights in other people. Now, I, what I don't mean by that is that you're, you're some gregarious you know, extrovert. You don't have to be an extrovert to delight in people. Rather, what I mean is that to delight in people means that there's a deepening love for them a costly love for them where their interests become what you think about more than your own. And yet this humility that Paul speaks of here in chapter 2, verse 3, it's utterly unnatural. It is not the natural bent of who we are. The natural bent of, of what we're like is selfish ambition and pride. In other words, Getting ahead and looking down. Getting ahead of other people and as a result, looking down on them. That's the general contour of the human heart. And what we need to also be really careful of here is that there is a religious version of humility that is just as terrible as the irreligious one. The religious one goes like this. It's the same idea of getting ahead and looking down but it just looks better from the outside by being more moral than the next person and then feeling superior about them. You see, this humility comes in two very different forms but the same root problem of caring about our own interests, our well-being, our advantage to the detriment of others. So how do you get this humility that Paul speaks of here? I didn't put this in your folder, but here's Paul's answer to that question. How do you get this kind of humility? He says in chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The answer to how do you get this kind of humility is it's a gift. It's received by faith. It is yours in fellowship with Jesus. You see, what is so astounding about the Christian message, the gospel, is that if it is the case that humility 
is essentially saying that you're taking and putting other people's needs and interests before your own. That is nothing, that is the gospel. That is what God does in Jesus Christ. When Jesus, in the flesh, he puts our interests, our needs, our guilt, our loss, our failure, our shame, our addictions, our bondage to to sin, our depression, our loneliness, our forsakenness, and he makes them his own. Do you believe that? If you're here this evening and you're racked with shame and sense of inferiority and guilt, or you're here this evening and you struggle with depression and you have for years and you feel like you're just not okay, Jesus on the cross is saying, I am taking your interests and I am making them my own. Paul tells us after he says that this is a gift, this humility, the reason it is is because Jesus, he tells us, he gave up everything and he took on the form of a servant, becoming just like us. And he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That Jesus takes your interests and he makes them his own. And he so thoroughly and completely makes your needs his own. That Paul, in another letter, he says something that you could quickly run by, but it is astounding. Listen to to how Paul puts this. This is in Colossians chapter 3. He says, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So deeply and thoroughly has Jesus made your interests and concerns his that he can now say that you've died. Your life is now his life. Your life is hidden in Jesus. Who you most truly are is found in Jesus. It boggles the mind. And yet, that's how Paul presents it. And he invites you to sit in that, marinate in that, delight in that. And when that happens, humility will flourish. You will find yourself delighting in other people the way that he has delighted in you. So for Paul, he says that our partnership in the gospel, it has to include this confidence that God is at work. And he will finish what he started. But it also includes this gift of Jesus' humility. And yet there's one more ingredient that Paul mentions towards the very end of this letter that we need if we're to thrive in our common life together. And the reason we need this is because Paul knows that ministry is often dark and discouraging which is why we need a very clear focus. We need hope. We need confidence, we need humility, and lastly, we need hope because we need a very clear focus in the midst of the ebb and flow, the the day and, and, and night 
of life together and ministry together. And it's not like Paul is not, he is very much aware of this. Let me show you where where I'm getting this from first. In chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, uh, lest you think uh, Paul uh, is naive about suffering and hardship, the realities that you and I face and live with, whether they're in your own life or they're things that you read about and see the world over, do not forget who's writing to us. He's in prison. But not only that, he tells us about his own experience that he had many imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. This is from 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me on me, of my anxiety for all the churches. And then, verse 8, chapter 4, think about these things. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely. Paul knows the hardships of life. And yet, here he's telling us, you need hope. You need a focus I need to tell you to think about these things. Now, Paul is not here just talking about data gathering, just acquiring more information. Eugene Peterson very helpfully puts it like this. Paul is not talking about information stored in the head, but intelligence that comes from the heart. I think that's beautifully put. Not information stored in the head, but intelligence that comes from the heart. So, for example, if I say to you, 2 plus 2 equals 4, my, my young kids know what that means, and you know what that means. A Nobel Prize winner knows what that means. Everybody knows what that means. It's information. It's a fact. But if I say to you the phrase, I love you, Now, that's a word that means something different every time it's said. It depends on who said it. It depends on to whom it's said. It depends on when it's said, the circumstances surrounding that statement. You see, Paul is not talking about just a fact of information. He's talking about an experience of knowing Hope of knowing that God is at work, of knowing that He 
is in control despite how you feel. Another way to put this, I think, would be to say, when Paul says to think about these things, what is he telling you to do? In a somewhat more poetic way, uh, borrowing from a song lyric, this is thinking that we could say that kicks against the darkness until it bleeds daylight. It is a thinking that kicks against the darkness until it bleeds daylight. And Paul says that the place to begin thinking about these things, if we ponder this for a moment and meditate on these things he's talking about in verse 8, you know what they all point to? They all point to the goodness of creation and the gift of redemption. The goodness of creation and the gift of redemption. Every single one of these whatevers in verse 8 finds its origin in God's good creation and his free gift of redemption. If you really want to know what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what's pure, what's lovely, what's commendable, what's excellent, what's worthy of your worship, you can only find those things in the goodness of God's creation and the gift of his redemption. You see, practically what does this mean for us? What this means is that we need to help each other kick against the darkness by delighting in God's world and hoping in God's work. Now my, my guess is to some of you, to tell you to do that is perhaps overwhelming because maybe all you are in right now is darkness and you don't know where the light could come from no matter how hard you tried to kick. And what I want to tell you, when Paul tells you to think on these things, the reality of the gift of redemption is that God has already broken through the darkness in the cross of Jesus. If you cannot see the brightness and the beauty and the glory of the goodness of God's creation, the gift of his redemption, the cross of Jesus is where you can find it. And all you need to do is to ask him to show it to you. Just ask him, Father in heaven, help me to see the light and the beauty and the glory of the cross. Please shine the light of Jesus into the darkness of my light, my life. That's what Paul is telling us when he says, think about these things. So there are three ingredients, three essential ingredients that we need, that Paul teaches us in this letter. How are we to thrive in relationship with one another, in ministry together, in partnership together? We need the confidence to know that God is at work. We need the humility that we see in Jesus on the cross for sinners. And we need to have hope. We need to think about these things that as we do so, take us into the very beauty and glory of what God has made and what he has done in Jesus. This, this is the good work 
Hope you know that. That God has already begun these things in the life of his people. And as we began, we, we read that Paul has said, God has promised to bring it to completion. He will make it so. When the Lord Jesus comes back and makes all things new. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for these words in Paul's letter to this church. Thank you that we can tonight read them and learn about them. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would take these these three things and that you would knit them into the very fabric of our lives, individually and also collectively. And we pray, Father, that you would deepen our affection for one another, the affection of Jesus for one another. And we pray that you would deepen and strengthen our partnership in the gospel for your glory, for our good, and for the flourishing of our city. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.